Hello and welcome to episode number 169 of Turkey Book Talk. Thanks for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we hear from Murat Metinsoy, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Istanbul University and the author of The Power of the People, Everyday Resistance and Dissent in the Making of Modern Turkey, 1923 to 1938, published by Cambridge University Press. In contrast with much historiography of early Republican Turkey, the book takes a bottom-up rather than a top-down approach, examining how ordinary people's reactions to Kemalist reforms shaped, modified or softened how those reforms were implemented on the ground across the country in those years. But before we get started with this latest interview, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders, and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews, then listen to them then good news because turkey book talk members receive a pdf transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published you also get pdf transcripts of the entire archive of turkey book talk interviews when you sign up including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Murat Metinsoy. He writes at one point that, quote, the common trait of the historical literature on Turkish modernization is its scant attention to ordinary people and their everyday experiences. The people have been considered ignorant and hapless victims, cynical opponents or brainwashed masses due to the lack of their own political organizations and movements. This book draws a different and more complicated picture by revealing the people's critical voices and coping strategies. In this picture, the political actors are not only the state, the elite and the organized opposition, but also individuals, families, communities, peasants, laborers, white-collar workers, retirees, widows and orphans, women and men, old and young. So I started by asking him why it's important to probe the everyday politics of ordinary people in this period after the declaration of the Republic of Turkey in 1923, in contrast to the more traditional idea of examining the era first and foremost through official state policies. 
Turkish scholars mostly equated politics with official politics. Even today's authoritarian government also champions this narrow concept of politics. Uh, why? To restrict the realm of opposition, restrict the realm of politics to parliamentary legal politics. However, my book shows that under authoritarian regimes, even subtle forms of resistance, everyday resistance, ordinary people's resistance may challenge the state projects, state hegemony, and may create a social ground for bigger political movements. In Turkish historiography, both modernist and even critical accounts, be they Marxist, liberal, or Islamist accounts, despite their opposing interpretations, focus on state ideology and uh, state elite, ruling elite. Especially the official Kemalist narratives and modernization accounts focus on state elite's actions, projects, plans, state policies. Therefore, these accounts have been handicapped with some serious shortcomings. For instance, they replicate what the state elite intended or planned rather than what happened in daily life. These accounts also mostly use the sources reflecting on the state plans and projects and ruling elites' thoughts and ideas rather than giving information about how these plans, projects and ideals were practiced in everyday life. As you know, it has been always in history, especially in Turkish history, much easier to access the conventional sources reflecting the state and elite stories. However, these accounts exaggerated Kemalist reforms and their impact in Turkish society. From their point of view, the Kemalist state, Republican state, is seen as strong, central, uncompromised, and rigidly authoritarian. However, if you take a look at everyday life and people's daily interactions with the state institutions and state agents like police, gendarme, soldiers, tax officials, and uh, other bureaucrats who put the laws and state policies into action in everyday life, we can see different picture. Looking at what really happened in the past from below uh, shows us the realities rather than the images. Turkish historiography generally focused on and reflected, replicated state images. However, we should take a look at the state reality and we can catch that reality only through everyday life history and ordinary people's daily interaction with the state policies can show us the state reality and the real nature characteristic of the Republican modernization and the success achievements and the failures, shortcomings of this process. You write in the book, quote, the new state abandoned the organized institutions of Islam, such as the Sultanate, the Caliphate, Madrasas, Sharia yeah. courts, tariqats, shrines, the fez, the face veil, sexual segregation, the Islamic calendar, yeah. and the Arabic alphabet, while adopting a new civil code, Latin scripts, the Western calendar, Western dress styles, and women's political rights. However, yes. it was easier to make regulations than to enforce them. Popular perceptions yeah. of women's role in society and marriage patterns, for example, changed little. All forms of spiritual belief and practice survived. The Republic could not fully impose its vision of modernity on society. So there you're talking really about a limit to state capacity, essentially. The state's power was not capable of transforming what was a huge, still rural population along the lines of modernity, secularism, reform that it wanted. 
And underlying all this was the fact that Turkey was still this overwhelmingly non-urban peasant population. And as you describe in the book, state authority was far from homogenous across the country, and it was far from even exerting itself in many parts of the country. So there was a real limit to state capacity. Could you just expand a bit on that theme? Specifically, what proportion of the population lived outside the cities during these early Republican years? And how important is that as a factor to consider? Yes, you're right. Republican modernization, Republican rulers embarked on a very radical and extensive reformation. In that respect, our historiography generally focused on the state plans and projects. Therefore, they did not into account the state capacity problem because they never focused on the implementation of policies in everyday life. The reality is much more complex. If you take a look at the everyday life, they cannot implement the most basic policies at local level due to the lack of basic equipments, financial sources, human sources, and fragile legitimacy among people. Therefore, it was unable to govern the majority of their areas and population. The people's informal resistance compelled the state to retreat or at least soften some of their policies. In this regard, the Kamel state was not so powerful. And sometimes Republican state had to revise major policies. If we take a look at the population and the fact that the Turkey was an overwhelming peasant society, rural population. Yes, indeed, Turkey was a rural country since the Ottoman times. Ottoman Empire did not have an industrial base. And with the destructive wars which depleted the urban population, the new Turkey, new republic, became a heavily peasant society, rural society, especially the deportation and massacres of the Ottoman minorities, non-Muslim minorities who lived in urban areas and uh, constituted the qualified urban population, Greeks, Armenians, and Jews. The new Turkish population, the new configuration of the Turkish public became much more rural and peasant. For instance, uh, population was about 13 million and uh, roughly more than 85% lived in villages. A huge part of this population was also illiterate. This demographical composition strongly affected the people's mentality. And the government also had great difficulty to transform this rural society, urban, industrial, modern society. The government was unable to collect taxes, monopoly incomes to fund the urban areas and industrial projects. Peasants also avoided as much as possible to fulfill tax obligations, for instance. Therefore, Turkey would remain a peasant society until the 1980s. From the 1950s, the migration from rural to urban areas started. And in the following decades, this migration increased. The Turkish peasantry dissolved quite late as compared to other lately developing countries, and this left its mark in Turkish politics. And newcomer rural migrants in urban areas built squatters' houses, and these people also came to cities not with blank minds, but with their cultural baggages, rural conservatism, spiritualism, and religious solidarity ties, and uh, this fed the conservative right and Islamist parties in Turkey. Yeah. So there's a major section in the book about opposition resistance to various cultural, social reforms, these uh, modernizing, secularizing reforms 
which were seen as controversial in vast swathes of conservative Anatolia. Yeah. And you talk about how reluctance regarding these reforms very often took the form of indirect foot dragging private protests rather than mass collective action. And I just wonder, you know, to what extent did that have an impact? Because you write at one point as well that, quote, contrary to the literature labeling the early Republican state as rigid and isolated from society, all these factors made it flexible and responsive to society through informal and indirect mechanisms of negotiation occurring in daily life. Those who were excluded from the high politics prompted the government to soften its policies thereby shaping political life and the modernization process. So people's covert criticisms and struggles jolted politicians into adopting more flexible and compromising policies. So there we see how this kind of limit to state capacity and the protests or foot dragging that it prompted among parts of the population that were less easily controllable actually had this effect of changing the state's behavior. Could you just talk about that? You know, is it possible to show how people's demands, the discontent that they expressed actually had an impact in changing state policy or forcing various concessions or shifts? Yeah, that's a very important question. And uh, you summarized my book better than me. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, actually, the uh, Republican modernization was one of the most radical modernization attempts, not only in the Middle East, but also in world history. The Republican reforms left no spheres of life untouched. On the top of that, the Republic also embarked on radical economic reforms based on etatism, uh, establishing public companies, monopoly companies, heavy taxation to fund the state building process, nation building projects, such as construction of new administration, new educational system, new judiciary system, construction of railways, creation of new bureaucracy. All these created burden for the population, especially agricultural producers. Uh, in an agricultural society and also cultural burden for many people who lived according to the principles of traditions and Islam. And all these got some reactions. Some supported full-heartedly or for their own interests. Some adopted partially, selectively, and some opposed for different reasons. We know well organizational, collective, intellectual dissidents and oppositional moments, Progressive Republican Party or Free Republican Party and Sheikh Said Rebellion and other Kurdish rebellions and some religious anti-Hat rebellions protest or anti-Turkish call to prayer, Turkish Ezan protest. However, historians generally argued that opposition to reforms appeared only in forms of these organizational collective open forms because they focused on organized ideological movements or activism or mass scale rebellions. We never deal with how people coped with these reforms, this burden in everyday life. This has not been explored in depth. However, if we take a look at everyday life, we can see huge amount of actions devised to cope with these economic, political intervention by the states. And in my book, I focused on this everyday resistance, history from below. Indeed, for that aim, I have to discover and use unusual sources such as petitions, some politicians' reports, and some other sources, police reports and court reports, gendarme records, and some local newspapers. And if we take a look at the impact of these actions on the state policies, 
First, government, okay, did not retreat from some revolutions, such as head reform, Latin scripts, civil code, ban on tariffs, prohibition of labor unions, oppositional associations. However, on the other hand, uh, the social response forced the rulers to soften some policies. For instance, government never banned the women's veil and left the anti-whaling campaigns to local authorities and opposed any use of violence against whale never forcibly intervened in gender relations despite the civil code. For instance, early marriages and religious marriages continued to be performed in the localities and the government never banned the other styles of man headgears, for instance, similar to fez, for instance, like school caps, papaks, were preferred by men instead of Western-style Panama hat or other peaked hat. And again, in many places, the call to prayer continued to be recited in Arabic. Many local governors, local officials turned blind eye to such disobediences. The illegal terracot meetings at homes and hidden religious education and informal Quran courses, Quran instruction at homes and mosques continued in this period. And the top leadership was well aware of all these through the politicians' reports on their election districts, petitions, denunciation, letters, and police reports, but never attempt to eliminate harshly by using violence as the Soviet government in the Stalin era attempted. Government authorities prefer to turn a blind eye to such disobediences. And by the way, all these resistance, disconformity, were not only due to the religious conservatives, religious fundamentalists. That's an important point I wish to make in my book. I also examine and reveal the social, economic, psychological, gender-related factors that motivated the people's response to the reforms. For instance, the people's negative approach to anti-whaling was not only related to their religious conservatives. They also feared from the competition, particularly men, feared from the competition of women employment in labor market, and feared from the decrease of their authority over women. Women also had some of their own subjective reasons, such as fear from verbal or sexual attacks in streets and expansiveness of new fashion clothing, etc. And government authorities, Kamal's leadership was also aware of all these due to their contact with the local population through some petitions, letters, and especially the government ordered their representatives, deputies, to visit their election districts and visit these places and contact people closely, listen to people, and record their demands, complaints, and the political, cultural tendencies. And these reports never remained on the dusty shelves of the bureaucracy. These information were used in decision-making, governing the country. Therefore, I think that the transformation of an authoritarian country just after the Second World War turning to multi-party system should be explained with the state contact with the people and state Kemalist elites awareness of the people's tendencies and people's mood, which especially declined during World War II, where catastrophic period for the people due to heavy taxes and forced labor obligations, etc. You also draw a material link between the resentment of these republican reforms among many people and economic difficulties 
So you talk about how the modernization drive was actually overshadowed for many people by feeble and slow economic development that was experienced. So basically improvement in material welfare was just not significant enough to compensate for discontent over the various cultural and social reforms and challenges to tradition. So in theory, I suppose if there was rip-roaring economic development, people could perhaps overlook the rupture that they were experiencing as a result of the reforms and the distancing from tradition. But obviously that didn't happen. And you describe that as another key reason why the reforms were subject to strong criticism and greeted at least warily. Also, the other thing is that such material difficulties made it easier to frame state elites who were pushing these reforms through as kind of frivolous living secular lifestyles and remote from the real struggles of quite real people. So just uh, tease that one out, basically, you know, that link between discontent over the reforms and material development or lack of sufficient material development that many people thought. Yeah, there were undoubtedly some links between the people's material motives, motivations and the response to a Republican state and especially secular reforms. The material life improved for a while after the long war years with the establishment of a stable order under the Republic. Especially the middle classes felt such welfare much more deeply than the peasants in rural areas did. Because the reformation process was funded with the surpluses coming from the rural areas, actually state building, reform, republican modernization created a great burden for the peasantry, especially poor, small landed groups. There were actually losers of the republic. Old imperial bureaucracy in Istanbul, ulema, religious staff who lost their economic and ideological status with the secular reforms and with the ban on tariqas, sheikhs. They also progressively lost their opportunity of employment and their ideological power over the Muslim community. And all these groups became the social base of discontent with secular reforms. If you take a look at the economic life, the craftspeople, artisans, who were the main backbone of the Ottoman urban life, also started to be declined due to the industrialization projects. And they were also discontented with the state-led industrial projects, which eliminated their job life. Then the uh, Great Depression came after a uh, short recovery in the 1920s. And the Great Depression hit the craftspeople and the peasantry, as well as the other social groups. In addition, poor peasants and small landholders also impoverished with the increasing agricultural taxes, livestock taxes, and uh, road tax. The Great Depression also caused the prices to decline sharply, and many peasants lost their small lands and production means and uh, dispossessed in the course of time. Actually, the interwar period was a very difficult period for the people. These hardships casted doubts on Republican cultural reforms by estranging the great part of low income and poor masses. And, and finally, especially the Second World War and social impact of the Second World War hit the population and especially alienated the huge masses, even urban masses from the government and created a legitimacy crisis among the ruling elite. Therefore, I think conservatism and conservative objections to reforms were motivated by material interests and motivations as well as cultural ones. 
I want to bring the themes that you talk about in the book and this whole debate about this era and some of the divides that we're talking about up to the present day, because obviously the book complicates this popular notion of the strong, unified, uncompromising state that's basically forcibly issuing top-down decrees across the country in a uniform way. And that has a implication, really, because as you say in the book, quote, both nationalist, secularist and critical accounts, including Islamist and Marxist accounts, portray the reforms as this uncontested, uncompromising and top down imposition. Both modernist nationalist narratives and critical Marxist or Islamist accounts are mesmerized by the Republican Kemalist reforms. Their focus exclusively revolves around the state, elites and ideologies. The modernists eulogize the Republic as a decisive revolution against religious backlash, whereas the latter question it by overemphasizing its coercive and transformative features. And you say that your book, by avoiding the portrayal of ordinary people as passive victims, it basically rehabilitates their agency. And that's a really interesting point, I think, about how contemporary people from various sides of the political spectrum actually view this era in the in the same way, essentially. So you've got sort of Islamists on one side, for example, who basically look at the state ideologies and impositions in this era and say it was a uniform thing. And then on the other side, the supporters of those reforms also just look at the state and the elites and ideologies and praise it. Whereas obviously you're taking a completely different view that avoids the portrayal of ordinary people as passive victims basically acted upon by the elites and you see them as much more participants. You know, that's a really interesting point about how various sides of the political spectrum actually share quite an overly simplistic notion of this era of early Republican history. And your book is part of the attempt that has also been attempted by others, other historians, to kind of complicate that narrative and to essentially rehabilitate the agency of ordinary people. And it creates this grey area, essentially, where the state is not this monolithic thing that everybody seems to imagine that it was. But it was also perhaps a bit flexible in some cases. The people were also somehow having a voice within it. Just wonder if you could reflect a little bit on that and how our contemporary notions on various sides of the political spectrum perhaps misunderstand this era and misunderstand some of the dynamics that were at work. Yeah, sure. That's very, really important point, which motivated my work, especially the projection of the political rivalry between the secular parties and the conservative right parties and Islamism, especially in historiography, has reduced the people's response, especially negative response during the early Republican period to a clash between secularism and religion. This approach, this framework is widespread and uh, very misleading. And unfortunately, both official Kemalist secularist narratives and Islamist narratives have some common points in their appraisal of the Republican era. Both these opposing interpretations look at everything that happened in interwar years as a clash between secularism and religion. And actually, the right Islamist conservative parties wanted to present the RPP as elitist, religious, even anti-religious, and alienated from society that pursued a blindfold imitation of Western culture an extension of Western, quote-unquote, Western imperialism. On the other hand, the Kemalist official modernization narratives, which presented the early republic as a conflict between enlightenment and ignorance, religious conservatism, also supported this Islamist representation. And this has been an important weapon of the Islamist 
and conservative right against the secular parties, even including socialists, interestingly. This political discourse was founded on their approach to early Republican history. Islamists identified the state and society tensions or the social discontent with the government policies, social, economic, cultural policies, with the cultural conflict between the irreligious Republican People's Party and the people's struck attachment to their religion, religious values and integrity, and reduced everything to cultural conflict, overlooking the material, social, economic factors which underpinned all these political discontent. I have shown in my book, yes, people's religious identity surely played a role, but less than assumed. The religious discourse of the oppositional voices did not mean that only religiosity motivated them. Many people used religious terms and discourse to articulate their feelings and opposition. You know, even the communist, communist party of Turkey members, activists, also used religious discourse to agitate the people against the government, agitate the working class on shop floor, factories against the government. And they also used sometimes the religious discourse to legitimate their arguments. And as a matter of fact, this can open new windows for for better understanding of early public revolutions, reforms. This historical view also enables us to evaluate the today's tension by going beyond the usual stereotypes of modern to religion conflicts, in my opinion. That was Murat Metinsoy. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 169. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. (music) 